Let me tell you, seeing or hearing does not guarantee faith. Look, hey, it's Rick here at kingship.church, and not that I necessarily want to do this, but if I could disprove the resurrection for you today, would your faith in Jesus still hold up? It's an interesting question, one that we don't like to think about, but whatever your response, it should be a healthy one. See, an aggressive never, Rick, that'll never happen, might be a sign that you're not actually weighing historical truths and that your faith is based more on ideals or feelings. But if you're too curious, it might be a sign that new teachings or just any new theory that comes along is just way more interesting than actually spending the time to make a deep conviction. But the outcome of the resurrection does matter. The answer to the fact that Jesus died and rose from the grave or not is the centerpiece of the Christian faith. The disciples did not start the church on Jesus' good teachings, just like, hey, everything he said over the last three years was so great, let's just start having church and telling everyone about that. It was on the fact that he had risen and defeated death. And Paul understood that, that the entire truth of the Christian faith hung solely from the resurrection being true. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. He even goes on to say that they might actually be misrepresenting God if they testified that God raised Christ. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Ugh. You know who else understood this? The chief priests and the Pharisees, the ones that ordered Jesus to be killed. See, in the Old Testament, they were aware of the prophecies. They were also paying attention to what Jesus was saying. But it never actually crossed their mind that he actually might be right. So they ordered the tomb to be guarded. Not that they believed Jesus would resurrect, as if like, hey, if he wakes up in the middle of the night, go and bash him in the head, keep him in there, okay? No, they were concerned that the disciples would try to make it appear as if Jesus did in fact resurrect. And in the time of Matthew's writing of his gospel account, he says that this idea was already in full circulation. In fact, it's a theory we still see floating around today, that the disciples just made it look like Jesus came back to life. And the chief priests and Pharisees really were sold on this, that the disciples did it. Now, I'm not actually sure what would they gain out of that. I mean, maybe the Pharisees' religious influence, perhaps, but... You know, the disciples, they all ended up dying for this rather than ever admitting to it being a lie. You know, Chuck Colson, who was part of Watergate, who ended up uh, discovering Christ in prison, said, look, there was 12 of us and we couldn't keep our mouths shut. So how on earth do you think the disciples would be that silent about a lie unless it was true? Surprisingly, though, the Pharisees' actions treat the disciples as these intellectual adversaries, these well-versed in Scripture men that, you know, instead of the misfit toys that they actually are. But something that we're already overlooking is that the chief priests already had the theory before the event of the resurrection. The disciples, they fled. They were nowhere near Jesus when he was dying on the cross. So the religious leaders weren't really scared of them. They were scared of him. They were scared of the power and authority they saw in Jesus. Look what they said. In the next day, that is, 
After the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, After three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Least his disciples go and steal him away and tell people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. And Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. Now, some actually say that that means that they were Jewish temple guards, but you, you can't just read the translation. You know, in the Greek, it really kind of is more of like a royal speech. Go and take, have my guards of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. So they go to Pilate, but, but when do they go to Pilate, right? They go the day after preparation. Well, the day of preparation is Friday, the day that Jesus was crucified, and dusk that night begins the Sabbath, Saturday. The priests and Pharisees went to Pilate on the Sabbath. They broke the Sabbath. It's a, it's a day that's supposed to be of rest when no work is to be done. If you go deeper, the Sabbath, what it's really about is resting on the work that has been done before. That it was enough. That you can look back and reflect on the good work and thank God for what has happened. When God created the earth, he rested on the seventh day and looked back on everything that he had done and saw it was good. Now, if you, if you spend a Sabbath... How do you really spend a Sabbath when you're resting? When you rest, do you, do you look back and you're like, man, everything I did last week was enough and I, I'm just, I'm so thankful for that. I can look back and I see what God has done. Or are we constantly thinking in our head like, next week I got to do this. Monday's coming along and I got to think through all these different things. No, we're, we're strategizing, we're planning, we're processing, we're being anxious, we're worrying about tomorrow when today has enough troubles as it is, Right? So the priests and Pharisees, they're stressing out about tomorrow. They're not thinking about the Sabbath. And they're, they're protecting the faith is now more important than actually living it. And they don't rely on God to protect his own people from the imposter. They're not even trusting God's word. Because you go back through the Old Testament, you can see the sovereignty and authority of God that he will take care of his people. There's a passage in Deuteronomy where it talks about that if you have a false prophet and he speaks commands that God did not command him to say, he will surely die. So they should have spent the Sabbath crucifying Jesus on Friday and resting in that work saying God took care of it. No, but they're instead worried and they say, don't worry, God, we'll make sure that it's final. So they've lost sight of priorities and they've disregarded God's authority. So just looking at their own actions, you would find them disqualified and unbelievers in their own view of God. And that's what self-righteousness does. Self-righteousness puts the outcome of God's sovereignty into our own hand. So Pilate sends the guards to watch over the tomb. And what happens? Well, according to scripture, and behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. And his appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for the fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. They experienced a supernatural occurrence and it leaves them in fear. They're terrified. And it's not 
because of future outcomes like, oh man, I could lose my job over this. No, they're terrified by the power of divine intervention. And when they awake, they find the tomb empty. And so they go and report this to the chief priests. Behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while you were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now, this is where the story gets interesting. But let's stop for a second and let's just remove that passage of Scripture that we just read. And let's just say that we couldn't use that as evidence, okay? Now, atheists and scholars have been debating this for years. And all would agree that we still have the evidence then of the guards spreading the story that the tomb is empty. So everyone's in agreement that Jesus is not in the tomb. But why? They're circulating a story that is unnecessary. Pilate has already been informed of this narrative. So for him to hear that the disciples were doing this, he would have already suspected it is false. The easier solution would have been to just reseal the tomb and claim Jesus was inside. The disciples' story would have then lost traction. But instead, they bring a counter story and travel it along to the neighboring Jewish towns. They didn't just stick with the one town where Jesus was in the tomb. They went to the other towns that couldn't even see the tomb. And so now the disciples' story is not that absurd. Instead, now everyone knows that the tomb is empty. This is called positive evidence from a hostile source. Dr. Paul Mayer notes it like this. In essence, if a source omits a fact that is decidedly not in its favor, then the fact is genuine. Oops. This is why Matthew notes this story in his gospel account. Behold, look, look upon the sea. Even the guards omit the tomb is empty. So if we take the scripture account at face value, that this is indeed true, you'd see that all the other historical characters in it all took the resurrection occurrence at face value also, omitting it to be true as well. Well, at least behind closed doors. Take the guards. The guards, they break command. They don't go to their commanding officer. They go to the priests. Because who would believe them in the Roman Empire about what they saw? And they share the truth. They don't just make up some strange story. They share the truth with the chief priests, which is not in their best interest either way because they're not telling them, the priests, what they want to hear. And my thought about this is that they experienced a divine moment that now has them searching for answers. I can't explain it. We don't know what happened. We, we've seen something we've never seen before. Where can we go? to discover what is true. And so they, they go to the chief priests, they go to the religious leaders, and they say, this is what we've seen, tell us, tell us what this means. And then they're handed a large bag of money. Instead, they're meted, meted with this considerable large bribe. It's, it's large enough for them to put their lives in danger. See, because to report the seal is broken by negligence, by the fact that, hey, we fell asleep when they stole it. 
It's punishable by death. So they don't want the governor to find out. And they're trusting the priests to protect them. And this is why you don't see in the Bible just this giant manhunt of the disciples, like rallying them all up, you know, interrogating them, good cop, bad cop. They don't, where is he? Where's the body of Jesus? There's no wide search for Jesus' body in the Bible. And it's probably because the governor is not informed or that if he was informed that the priests lobbied him for the sake of the guards. But why go to all that trouble? See, the irony is that the priests... They believe the guards instead of just reporting them. What did you just say that happened? An angel? They don't, you just fell asleep. We're going to report you, and that way we don't have to deal with your crazy story, and that way we can get the disciples. So instead, the priests, <laughs> they believe them. They believe their story. And yet, it still doesn't register for them. There's no repentance, no admission. It's like being in an argument, right? You ever been in an argument before? And when you're corrected by the other person, you don't admit you're wrong. What do you do? You double down, right? Isn't that how all fights work out? Because we hate admitting that we're wrong and we're not that much different than the chief priests. Why are they believing the guard's story unless, unless they believe it's true? Isn't that great? That means that the chief priests and the Pharisees believe that Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Isn't that wonderful? Even the demons believe that, though. See, the issue is, is that being confronted by truth does not translate to transformation. The guards, they see truth. But wealth, wealth is more enticing. What about the priests? The priests hear the truth, but power, power is more valuable. What about us? What about your belief, my belief? What is the cost that it can be bought at? How much? What's the price tag for you to disregard what you believe? Let me tell you, seeing or hearing does not guarantee faith. Only by the power of God will we be able to be transformed. Our hope begins by Him, the author, the creator, the perfecter, of our faith, Jesus. And they could not truly see or hear because their hearts did not understand who truth was. See, to know the truth is not just weighing the facts. It's not just experiencing divine occurrences. It is to know the truth as the person of Jesus. See, the when the church, the church is not growing right now, and it didn't start growing then by more eyewitness accounts, but by those that live by faith, not by sight, but by faith. Why? Because their faith was found in the person of Jesus, an intimate relationship with him. You know, in Jesus's ministry, there's a time period where he's sharing a hard truth with his disciples. And many of his disciples at that time, they just turn away saying, the message is too hard, we can't do it. And Jesus turns to his 12 disciples and he says, what about you? Will, will you leave me too? And Peter has this great statement that he, that he makes. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life and we have believed and come to know 
that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus, Jesus reminds them right then and there how they have come to know that when he says, did I not choose you, the twelve? Then he warns and says, and yet one of you is a devil. Now here he's referring to Judas, the one that will go and betray him, which will lead to Jesus dying on the cross. Now you think about all of Peter's experiences. You think about how he, what he saw, what he heard, his walk with Jesus. And you know that Judas had very similar experiences and yet his heart is still hardened and he does not know Jesus in an intimate way in a truthful way of who Jesus is like Peter does. Peter saw the author, the creator, the authority, the answer in the person of Jesus in that moment. But you and I both know that doesn't last because it's not that much longer until the fear of his own death had him denying and running scared when Jesus was dying on the cross. Do you know this man, Jesus? No, I don't, I don't know that man. Get away from me. It's a relapse. Peter has forgotten who he is, who has chosen him, what residency he has, what kingdom he is a part of. You ever been like that? Ever made a mistake? You're following Jesus and there's that moment, just a relapse, you screw up. I know that I have. And Paul has too and he says, in scripture he says, I do the thing that I hate and I do not know why I do it. Why? I know it's not what I should do and yet it still happens. It's because we have been transformed by Christ, but yet he is still molding us into his image. This word, we are being sanctified and we're being made into a new creation, which means that there are still pieces of us that we have not yet surrendered, that we are still holding back from Jesus. And sometimes we think that those are the pieces that are the true us and not this new identity. And in this time period, where the guards are spreading this lie, Peter is feeling lost. He's fallen short. He's, he's a sinner. He's probably saying to himself, not Judas, I'm the real betrayer. And it's no wonder he goes back to fishing. He just goes back to what he knows, right? When we screw up, how many times are we like, well, I've messed up, so the day's ruined, so I guess maybe I'll try to follow Jesus tomorrow, but not today. I'll just, just so that we don't have to think about it. Jesus is not interested in leaving you in that state. See, when he resurrected, the angel was commanded to tell the women to go and tell the disciples. But in Mark's account, in the Gospel of Mark, it specifically says to go and tell the disciples and Peter so that he could know the truth, so that he could know what has happened, that Jesus has resurrected, that he's overcome death, that Jesus has paid the cost of what Peter sold out his faith for, that that price tag has been covered. What is your price tag? What is the amount that you have sold out your faith for? You need to hear today, you need to hear the truth in the person of Jesus, that that has been bought and paid for. 
and there's no more room for guilt and shame, only to receive the mercy and grace that Jesus bestows upon us.